Morning, everybody. We're going to start this morning by reading a psalm together. Maybe we can stand for those who are able and willing. And we're going to read Psalm 3. Okay. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike the enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to start um, by saying that this teaching, which is less of a teaching and more of a brief meditation with some prayer and other voices mixed in, was inspired or provoked by the recent legislation impacting our queer community, our medical professionals, our teachers, our librarians, our children, and our allies. This is a quote from a friend of mine and a member of our community. There'll be a total of three different voices you'll hear this morning. Um, and after each one, we can just say, Lord, have mercy. Let's practice once. Lord, have mercy. Here's our first quote. As a gender non-conforming person who identifies as non-gendered, my heart is broken for our trans community. I think about the mental health implications for people of all ages, and particularly for our children. I'm so incredibly sad and angry. I hoped for better than this. It's confusing, to say the least. What is the point of stopping people from being who they are? Lord, have mercy. Some generations after Noah, God calls Abraham and Sarah to go with the promise of making them parents or leaders of a movement, something new that God is doing in the world. And that leadership baton is passed many times, and the people of God grow and prosper. They ult ultimately multiply such that they are seen as a threat 
and enslaved by the Egyptian empire. God raises up Moses as a deliverer, and Joshua takes Moses' place, leading the newly freed people into the land of promise. Now, things don't go as expected. As it turns out, the promised land is already inhabited, and the people who reside there, understandably, don't take well to this invasion. There's a civil war which divides Israel into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, the North and South kingdoms, one of which, Israel or the North Kingdom, is conquered fairly quickly and carried off. That would be hard enough, but then there are constant battles with neighboring countries and empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and the story comes to an end in the last chapter of 2 Kings. And for those of us who are awaiting a happy ending, it can be disconcerting to say the least. I want to read a little bit from the second chapter of Kings and some of the <coughs> lament that follows and ask what happens when that thing which we have counted on comes crashing down around us. And in light of our series, our Lenten series, I am saying no to oppression and yes to liberation, but I want to nuance it a little bit, and I want to say no to the process of oppressing, and yes to the struggle for freedom. So Second Kings, the last chapter, starting in verse 1. So in the ninth year of King Zedekiah's reign on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah, so a couple years. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through Babylon, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled to Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All the soldiers were separated from the king and scattered, and he was captured. I'm going to skip the next bit because it's gruesome. But just to say it doesn't go well for the king or the king's family. Did I remember to skip it on the page or are you all reading the gruesome part? <laughs> Maybe I skipped it. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, 
all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building he burnt down. So this has to be the most understated sentence in the whole Bible. This is the temple that David dreamed about, that Solomon, with the help of a lot of slaves, built, that became the center of uh, Hebrew life. It was everything to God's people. It was where they met, where they worshiped. It was where God dwelt. The whole Babylonian army under commander of the Imperial Guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted the, to, to the king of Babylon. But, of course, the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands in the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The man, commander of the imperial guard took away the censers, sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold and silver. Now, I'm stopping there, but it goes on for another 15 verses with more of the same. And the writers are going out of their way to let us know that everything that the Hebrew people held sacred, their temple, their palace, their homes, their artifacts, their treasures, on and on and on, it was all destroyed. Now, I get that this is extreme, and it's a little bit Job-like. And as we consider the laws in our state, for most of us, we're not losing our homes. We're not experiencing famine. Our buildings are still standing. And yet, the devastation and the despair felt by many is real. For many, it has that similar trajectory. This thing that I have been building, this thing that I have been working toward, this thing that I have been counting on has been destroyed. I want to say to all, who are directly impacted by this current legislation. I'm so sorry. This is not the will of God. You are not suffering for a purpose in that biblical sense. From the beginning of time and certainly within our sacred text, humans have had better and worse moments Early in Genesis, God asks Cain, who's just murdered his brother, Abel. God says, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The answer 
to Cain is yes. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, humans, you are your brother's keeper and your sister's keeper and your mother's keeper and your father's keeper. Their blood cries out. The kingdom, some of us say kingdom of God, of heaven, that Jesus preaches, says, you are here to care for one another. You are here to care for every living creature. You are here to care for creation. Yes, yes, God shouts down from the heavens. You are your brother's keeper. Our sacred text is filled with cycles of oppression and liberation over and over again. That the Hebrew people are carried off to Babylon is not the end of the story. Seventy years later, they return, a new temple is built. They never experienced the freedom or glory they did. Um, but they have something. You know, I heard a scientist um, recently explain that evolution happens very, very slowly, but times where there's a lot of activity is right after a mass extinction. And I wonder if the same thing can be said for our human experience during that time, those times of diaspora, first in Babylon, and then again in the first century, 70 AD, after the second temple was destroyed, important changes happened um, to worship. The temple was decentralized, and worship could happen in lots of places, lots of gatherings all over, wherever one found oneself. Much of the written text was completed, the sacred text, our sacred text compiled. In that sense, we can agree with Joseph who, when talking to his brothers who had much earlier hold, sold him into slavery and said, you intended to harm me, God intended it for good. As long as we're clear that God uses things for good is very different than God authors harm. God never, ever wills evil historically or in the present. Human suffering is often the result of harmful choices. It is often the consequence of self-centeredness and greed. And our invitation always is to fight for justice for everyone. The Book of Lamentations is a direct response to the passage I just read. It is a lament. I imagine the people memorized it, spoke it, sang it, cried it. I imagine there were many other songs and laments that never made it to our text. But perhaps we could read this one together. Okay. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, 
tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her. Zion, mourn. Amen. As a community, we share one another's burdens. As such, I have two longer quotes from members of our community. The first one is from a dear friend who is a school librarian, and the second from a mom of a trans child. We'll conclude each one with Lord have mercy. From the librarian. Mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors are metaphors coined by Rudine Sims Bishop to describe the experiences that books can provide for children. In its simplest form, a book can become a mirror for a child to see themselves in the pages. It can also be a window that allows children to see a vantage point, a life experience, or worldview different from their own. As a sliding door, glass door, a book can transport a child into the experience and story which, we, which can create empathy and understanding for a child reading stories about experiences different from their own. Banning books shuts the window, closes the door, and for the non-dominant societal group, covers the mirror. The books on the list to be banned are not the vast majority of published children's works that are based on heteronormative white characters. Rather, they are LGBTQ characters, characters of color, and books that address race and racism that are the targets. I do many tasks in my job, from teaching classes to fixing pesky Chromebook and tech problems. The one task that is nearest and dearest to my heart and provides the most joy in my job is interacting with kids as they try to find the book that speaks to them. I've always loved matching people with books, and it's an honor when a student trusts me enough to let me into their world and find that special book, whether it be mirror, window, or sliding glass door. To strip away books that help me do that and to take them away from kids who quietly like to search for just the right book of their own on the shelf is to take away the heart and purpose of what I think many school libraries do best and is their most important work. Lord, have mercy. This is a quote from the parent of a trans child in our community. As parents, we have many roles, providers, boundary setters, 
nurturers, to name a few, but of all the roles, helping my children discover and live into the people God created them to be is one of my favorites. In practice, this is making observation, noticing little things like the fact that one of my children will ask question after question after question until their logical brain can comfortably settle into new understanding or watching closely as my other child's compassionate heart moves them to give each stuffy a blanket and a kiss prior to leaving for school each day. It has also meant listening to, with curiosity to what my children express via their words and actions. Like the parents and caretakers in this room, I listen to my kids and I believe them. I listen when they tell me they're afraid of the dark. I believe them when they tell me they don't like spicy food. I believe them when they tell me they don't like it when the whole family sings the happy birthday song. And I believe the child who has never questioned their gender identity, who falls solidly within the range of typical and thrives there. I also believe the child who at age of three asked me if God could make them the opposite gender and who four years later remains happy, unwavering in that identity. It is one of the greatest joys of my life to watch my children grow and explore who they are in safe spaces of home, school, church, and friendship. Although not every space has been safe for my gender nonconforming child, the past few weeks have been especially difficult. Iowa legislators who know nothing of my child's story who appear to have no regard for research or evidence-based practice, who regularly boast about standing for freedom, have advanced bills that will take away my child's right to access gender-affirming health care, to see themselves represented in books, and to access the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. I am overwhelmed, grieved, angry, terrified, I do not understand the need to regulate another person's identity. I'm concerned about how these laws will impact each of my children's mental health and physical health, and I worry about what is yet to come. For now, I have resolved to focus on what I can control. I will continue to call and march in opposition to these hurtful laws. I will continue to make my home a safe place where unconditional love flows and my child's truth is honored. I will continue to delight in my children as they make more discoveries about themselves, and I will celebrate the new insights and changes as they arise. I will continue to be grateful for all people who continue to work on behalf of the marginalized, and I will be forever thankful for my safe spaces, the community that helps me carry the overwhelm, grief, anger, and fear, and hope for a better future. Lord, have mercy. We're going to take a moment now, and we're going to pray for one another and our community. And I'm going to try to respect all the sensibilities in the room as I give some options for how this is going to work. 
So in just a moment, we're going to project a prayer um, that we'll all pray together. If you are someone impacted by the legislation, feel free to pray along or feel free to just receive. Up to you. If you are friends or family members of someone who is impacted by this and you want to turn toward them or put a hand on their shoulder or any way you want to express your concern, you can do that as well. If you are newer to sanctuary or for any reason um, you're alone um, or people don't know you might want prayer, I'm going to give you a moment. You can raise your hand and then anyone around you will know that they're praying for you, even as we're praying a one prayer together. So this is one way where we say, yes, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. So gather any way you want, if there are people by you, if you um, would especially like people praying over you, you can raise a hand. Um, nobody has to. People know who each other are in the room. Um, so please bless your friends and loved ones as we pray. And we've got the prayer projected. All right. God, you stand with those who are singled out for harm. And so we in this room stand with them. Would you bring us more deeply together into your mind, into your heart, filled with knowing and compassion and hopefulness. God, for those who are depleted, give them rest. For those who are hurting, be their balm. For those who are rageful, hear their anger, like you heard the Israel slaves who cried out to you all those years ago. Steady the resolve of all of us in this room. Stay true to our values, inclusion, and empowerment. May this be a place of hopefulness and healing for all who are oppressed and for those who care for them. Amen. We'll close with this. Um, the people of God and the Bible from their place of diaspora prayed to the God they loved and still they could not fix everything. Prayer didn't change what happened, at least not immediately. But what they could do was create new ways of reconnecting to God and new communities to worship together and do life. They created new liturgies. They created and adapted stories that would become what we know of as the Hebrew Bible. They persevered and continued. And out of that came Jesus and the faith that we practice today. When you and I pray, we can't always fix everything Prayers don't always take away our pain. We pray for hearts to be softened, but we can't ultimately make people care about our children. But what we can do is incarnate the love of God by saying to our friends, we love you so much, we're so sorry, and when you suffer, we suffer 
and we want to be that safe space for to share as little or as much as you want with no agenda for your process. We want God's blessing and healing. What we can do is fight for the things we care about, refusing to give up while acknowledging real losses. I'll close with the prophet Micah's exhortation. God has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Amen.